Those of you here in the auditorium, let's take our Bibles and we'll head over to Matthew chapter 11 and 12. Starting in chapter 12, then we'll back up. While you're turning, they're going to hand out some notes if you didn't get them. And let me just ask you a few fun facts here. What is on the top of the U.S. Supreme Court building? A swimming pool, library, private bedrooms, basketball court, or 100 TVs? It is one of these. You got a, you got a chance. The library, no. Somebody said swimming pool, no. The TVs, no. You got to narrow down. Good job. Okay. It's not the private bedrooms. Now you're down to the very last one. Okay. It's the basketball court. Who do what, when you take a pair of dice and the numbers always add up the, on the opposite sides of the dice? Do they add to seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, or twelve? Seven. You are so smart. Here we go. How long is New Zealand's 90-mile beach? 90 miles, 100 miles, 75 miles, 110 miles, 55 miles. What do you think? It's not 90 miles. Okay. It's, it's a goofy name. Okay. 75. Who said 75? What? It's not. It's not. But I just wanted to make sure you got recognition for, for that. <laughs> Well, yeah, no, this one is that. This one is that. Any guesses? 110. Wrong. Boy, you guys are good getting rid of the wrong answers. Anybody want to guess again? No, <laughs> we're down to just a couple. It is 55 miles. Why it's called the 90 miles beach, I have no idea. About how many times a day does the average person laugh? 100, 75, 50, 10, uh, 25, 5. Not enough. <laughs> that one we'll agree with. What do you think? Average person laughing. What did you say, 50? No, it's not 50. It's 10. The average person, they say, is about 13 times a day laughing. So we will work very hard at helping you get all 13 in this morning. Okay, our, our best shot. How many pounds of old skin flakes off during the, shed that it, the average size adult? How much flakes off in the course of the year? 10 pounds, 50 pounds, 100 pounds, 200 pounds, 500 pounds. 10 is not right. 100 is not right. 50 is not right. This is scary. Okay. Over 500 pounds of skin. There's a whole lot of me that's being left behind. Okay? Yeah, my word. At, here's one. At one time... It was true or false to ship your kid via the postal system. That is true. Absolutely true. Prior to 1913, how many wish it were still? No, we don't want to ask that. That's not a possibility. True or false? Or which one? Who has bigger brains? Men or ladies? <laughs> ladies is not the right answer. Do anybody want to guess? It's men have, on average, a larger size brain. Anybody want to know what the reason for that is? Don't, don't do it. <laughs> Be careful, your wife's right next to you. <laughs> because, the, because the body size with a, with a larger muscular structure and meeting more, uh, dealing with more muscular capacity, supposedly, is what the idea is, is that the men's brains are, are on average, a little bit bigger. Now, every lady wants to add to this. Who uses their brains more, right? <laughs> we'll, we'll try to go off that one. Jesus was the oldest of at least seven kids born to Mary and Joseph. True or false? That is True. That is true. There's a listing of his family members in Mark 6. They list four brothers by name and says his sisters. So adding together at least seven children in that family, if not more, depending upon the number of the girls. Speaking of his family, we're in Mark chapter, uh, Matthew chapter 12. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus makes a statement that we want to look at. Look at down in verse 46. Matthew 12, 46. While he was yet talking with the people, behold, his mother and his brother, brothers uh, stood with Without desiring to speak to him. Then one of them said unto him in this crowd of people, Behold, your mother and your brothers stand without desiring to speak with you. He answered and said unto them that told him, Who is my mother? Who are my brethren? He stretched forth his hands toward his disciples and said, Behold, my mom and my brothers. 
For whosoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same is my brother, sister, and mother. We wanted to ask some questions about this and develop this whole passage in a very different way this morning. And so when we're looking at it, when Jesus is saying it, let's set the scene. Whenever you're doing a Bible study, you've got to figure out what, when it is being said, who is being talked about at the time. It's in the early part of his ministry still. He's in Galilee, in the region where he grew up. This is an important detail. He's in the area where he's traveling a lot to villages that he and peoples would be, the disciples would be familiar with. So he's in a hometown region. He is still very popular with most people. Most of the people of the towns are coming out. But some of them react against him. Like in Nazareth, when he first preached there, what was their reaction? His very hometown. What did they do at the end of his message? They took him out of the city up to a hill, and what were they going to do? They were going to throw him off the hill. So the prophet is without honor in his own hometown, and that was really true. But in this broader region, he was getting a lot of reception. A lot of people were there, were following him. But the Pharisees were growing in jealousy. Their jealousy was because they didn't have the crowds. He was popular. They weren't. Um, he is getting, becoming very influential. And so as a result, there's more and more conflicts. That's going to play into this passage. So his mom and brothers come, and they're unable to get close because of the crowds. And as they come to get there, our question is, why do you think they come to see him? If we set the scene right, he's becoming popular with the people, but he's becoming unpopular with the, the Pharisees. How might that be affecting mom and brothers? Could there be a negative reaction happening? We're surmising here. We're, we're not, it's not stated. But what could be happening to mom and brothers? There, they could be starting to get some of the pressure, the ostracized from the villagers, from the, from the um, uh, Pharisees who are in charge. I mean, do, do, do when we hear from missionaries, do missionaries ever run into orthodox religious people that stir up the, the village against the gospel? That happens all the time. So could this be the case that they come and they're concerned about him? Now remember, there's also a concern. His brothers at this time are not believers. And when it is stated in John 7, when they talk to him, they say, fine. Go to Jerusalem, show yourself, and they say, show yourself that you might be the mad Messiah. They are implying that Jesus could be crazy, okay, fanatical. And so they're not believers at this time. His mother is obviously in, by her faith, but the, boy, the other brothers, they don't have faith in him. And uh, they, haven't, they haven't trusted him as Savior at that point. So then Jesus, in the midst of this, he says, who's my, my relatives? Who's my family members? And there was a term that is used the, when it talks about relatives. Sometimes we would use the word kinfolk. Okay, so I've used that here. It's translated that way at times. And so Jesus is basically saying, who's my kinfolk? Now it is interesting how some have, have uh, dissected this passage. Some have suggested, some critics of Jesus and of the gospel, they suggest that Jesus has a problem right now. What do you think they might be saying about his mental capabilities? What's that? He doesn't remember his own family. And so Jesus is this, again, you, you understand where they're coming from by just this accusation, that Jesus is basically a nut. And so he doesn't know. And so they're saying that he is unstable. That is how some interpret this text, to showing Jesus being unstable mentally, suffering from, what's the name of that disease that you forget things? Alzheimer's, dementia, okay. Then there's Jesus simply, some say, he didn't care about his family. Is that true that Jesus just said nothing to do with family? How do you know that? That's a great answer, good example. At the cross, he's very concerned about Mary. Yes, no? Do you remember that? Okay. Some would say he's tearing down the family concept. He wants his disciples to have nothing to do with their families. Is that true? Okay, he does say that he who loves father and mother more than loves me is not worthy. Does he mean that we should have no contact with family? No, how do you know that? 
Now let's expand. Let's jump further into the, into the epistles. What does the epistles tell us about family responsibilities? Anybody remember any of them? Yeah, in 1 Timothy where he's writing and he's saying, in Thessalonians as well, where he's writing and saying that those who don't take care of their older relatives in their family, they are worse than an infidel. So that can't be what he's talking about. So what do you think he's talking about when he says, who are my kinfolk? What do you think he means? Any idea? Any concept? Okay. Okay, his family is anybody who believes. Okay. So you and I would probably be in agreement that we would say, okay, in, in when we're talking, okay, today we say kinfolk, we usually mean family, blood family. But back in Bible days, they could also be referring to people who live close to them or those who were in, you know, um, we, we do this all the time in Christianity. I'm going to call you my what as far as a family member. I'm going a brother, a sister in Christ. And we mean by that what? Yeah, we're, we're tied together. We have a bond. Any of you ever do this? You run into somebody you've never met before, you find out they're a believer, and what happens? Does, is there a feeling of camaraderie? Yeah, yeah, and unity. And so he's talking, and I think what he's doing is Jesus is making it very clear, I am willing to expand my family and my, my closeness beyond just a small little group of people and shelter this way. I'm, I'm willing to expand, and I will make you a family member. You'll be like a family member in relationship to me. You'll be real close to me if you and I are on the same page, same harmony. Now, what makes a lot to this is you should do this one when you're doing any kind of Bible study. You're doing, a, you're doing one for you and your family. You're doing a Bible study for your neighbors. You're doing a Bible study for teaching some of the kids sometime. What you want to do is you want to back up and you want to understand what led up to this. It'll, it'll tremendously impact this, the interpretation and the application. You want to back up and you want to get the setting. And when you get the setting and go through it, man, it just makes a difference, especially when you do this with narratives. Gospel historical narratives is it's like any other story. Usually in the story they give you some type of information, then they start telling you about something that is rising in action and they come to, and you do this with any story, they come to a climactic point and then they give you some of the falling action and some of them the conclusion, conclusion, concluding details. If you follow this and kind of chart and let's say this morning what we're going to do is we're going to make the point of the apex of this story, Mark chapter 12, who is my family? Anybody who comes to me. That's going to be what we're leading up to. Then if we chart what, what, brings, uh, what leads up to it, it really highlights that sentence a whole lot more. Walk with me and let's just do this. We'll see how this unfolds in your thinking. Because here's, here's my question, okay? As you start a little bit earlier and start the flow of the story and what happens ahead of time, here's our question. Jesus is saying, I want anyone who is going to follow me, I want them to be part of my family. Let me reverse this question to you. Let me, let me start at the, the top of the story and go backwards. Why would anybody choose to be a close friend of Jesus? Okay, if you do, what's the possibilities of responses from the Pharisees? If you all of a sudden align with Jesus, what's the chan- what, what might you run into? What's that? You could be thrown out of you later on for sure. They could be all of a sudden ostracized from the, from the um, synagogues. They could have pressure. Their family might give them pressure. So let's, let's do this backwards. Jesus is inviting all of us, if we're living back in that day, to become his kinfolk, really align with him. Our question is, why would we want to align with Jesus? Reasons are abundant in the previous verses. Start back in chapter, uh, chapter 11. Let's just randomly grab a spot that says, okay, at the beginning of a chapter that is a little bit before, it's the story of Jesus that he is in the uh, area and he's ministering to people. But John the Baptist at this time, and I'll give you background and then you come give us conclusions. John is wondering what is, what's the story with Jesus. At this moment, anybody remember where John is? He's in prison. 
He's already been arrested by Herod. And um, even though he had baptized Jesus, he is now kind of floundering, kind of in his mind wondering, is Jesus the real one? Did we get it right? And so he sends two people to come to Jesus and to say, are you really the Messiah? And Jesus tells him what? What's his answer? In the beginning of Matthew chapter 11, Jesus is going to say to them, and if you have a red letter, it makes it easier. Jesus says, okay, here's the answer you give to John. What is it? Yeah, he says, tell him everything that you've just witnessed. You've just witnessed, and, in, and if you look in the story, Jesus kind of elaborates what he says, go and show John, again, all the things that you just saw and you just heard, and the, that the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the, did you catch this phrase? The dead are raised up. He goes a little bit further. The poor have the gospel preached, and blessed is he. And so they go off, and they, they see and they're going to go and give John the message, which is going to be reassuring to John because what we just read, where did that come from? Did you, it, it's a quotation. I know Jesus said it, but it's, it comes out of Isaiah where he prophesies that he is going to have the Spirit upon him and this is what's going to happen. And so... What they do is they go back, they tell him, and after they tell, uh, after they leave, John, uh, Jesus makes this comment. Here's the additional beatitude. Blessed is he that shall not stumble, be tripped up. Blessed, and John was wondering, but he didn't trip up. And so you have this, this confirmation that Jesus gives. But notice the next verses. What does Jesus say about John? If you go down a little bit further in the text, he says, ask the people, what did you go out to see? What do, we, what do you think about John? What did, every, what did Jesus say? In verse 9, what did Jesus tell or confirm about John the Baptist? Okay, it start, in verse 9, let's start there, okay? What's he call him? Okay, he calls him, he, make, he assures and confirms he was a prophet and he even makes the comment in the previous verses where he talks about this one who was in rough garment. Kind of, who's he comparing him to? There's a prophet in the Old Testament that looked really rough in garment and in lifestyle. Elijah, Elijah, yeah. And so he's on that plane. Verse 10, what does Jesus say about John? How does he describe John? What's that? He's the messenger. He's a, an especially a special appointed messenger. Verse 11, what does he say about John? What's that? I don't mean to challenge, you know, overly challenge. What's he just summarizing verse 11? He's the greatest prophet, okay? So he's the greatest of the men who were born. Then in verses 18 and 19, you summarize what's he saying, and basically he says, John comes, doesn't eat or drink, and you say that, he, you know, you criticize him that he has a devil. I come and I eat and drink, and what do you say about me? I do just the opposite. What do you claim? That I was well above the devil. So in other words, he's making John and Jesus operated differently, but both of them were yeah, they're both criticized, they're both attacked. Okay, now taking this and being very simplistic with it, it when Jesus commented on John, any thoughts of why would Jesus be an appealing figure to anyone? From just what he said about John, for instance, what does that tell you about Jesus? As a person, on a man-to-man -man basis, why would, why would somebody be attracted to Jesus? What's that? He knew all about him, okay? Yeah, 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 excellent, okay? He knew all about him, okay? He, you know, John was a special messenger. He is, Jesus knowing him, he's very supportive of John being loyal to him. So if you're hearing this and you're looking and saying, well, if I align with Jesus, I can be assured that he's going to remain supportive, loyal to me. 
He's not like some people that as soon as, soon as you get close to him and give loyalty, they dump you. That's not Jesus. And so he would be attractive. And again, you and I are looking at this from a man-to-man point of view. Why would I be attracted to Jesus and say, I'll make you a kinsman, I'll follow you? Well, if you follow him, okay, he's got tasks for you, he's going to bless you. Let's go a little bit further, okay, and keep it very simplistic. He goes on, and the next thing, the event that happens in this chapter, and he starts talking, it says in verse 20, he began to upbraid the cities wherein most of his mighty works were being done. Because why? Why is he upset with the Jewish cities? They weren't believing. Then he makes this comment, okay, and he's doing all these miracles, okay, and according to verse 20, he's doing a lot of the miracles in their midst. Then we go a little bit further, and it says, it tells us the response of the people in verse 20. You already mentioned it, they're repenting not. They're not responding to Jesus. So why do you think they're responding this way? What could be the multiple reasons that they're not believing in Jesus? Could it be the pressure of the Pharisees? Yes, no? Okay. Could it be their own hard hearts? Could it be they want miracles but they don't want the message? All of this plays right into the situation. And remember, he's a homegrown boy. He's from the region. So he's not only doing miracles, he's going to be claiming messiahship. They don't think homegrown boy is necessarily Messiah because the Messiah, nothing good can come out of Nazareth, out of this region. So they have a bias against Jesus. And so they, it could be they just don't like his preaching, which that's going to come up in John chapter 6. So Jesus warns them. What does he say to them in the next couple of verses? What is the, uh, you unfold the warning that he gives these people. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon. They would have repented. It shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon, therefore, when? What's he mean by that? He's the judge. Clearly, he's the judge. That's what's implied. And to whom much is given, much is going to be required. So what you got here is they're going to suffer more severe judgment than even Tyre and Sidon are not Jewish cities. They're infamous in the Old Testament for paganism as being anti-Jewish. They're cities as they, in the intertestamental period. They've been contrary to the Jews. And so the Jews are like, okay, Tyre and Sidon, they're at this time of life, they're like um, sin cities. If I say Sin City in America, what, what city are you going to throw up there? Okay, Vegas would be there. You know, so, so, you know San Francisco or different, different areas. That is in their mind, Sin City is Tyre and Sidon to the people, the general folk. So he's saying they're going to have a better result in judgment than the Jewish cities. From a Jew listening to this, Wow. That is just absolutely, you know, tremendous. So he's basically saying this. When it comes to hard hearts, of those who don't want to repent, the more that happens, what typically, the, the, the more, if they have a hard heart, they don't want to respond, the more that God tries to affect them, what often happens? They get harder. Can you think of an Old Testament guy who's Pharaoh? The more he saw... What happened to his heart? It got harder and harder. And so he's warning these people of this judgment. And then he adds another city. Did you catch the other city, Tyre and Sidon? What other city does he throw in the mix? Okay, Sodom. And right away, what are you thinking? You know, when you talk wickedness, is there a city in history that, that wouldn't have a historical idea of being more wicked besides Babylon? So it's just this tremendous comment. And then he does this. It, the passage says, at that time, verse 25, he prays. 
And he says these words, I thank you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hid these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them unto the babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. All things are delivered into, unto me of the Father. No man knows the Son but the Father. Neither knows any man the Father's except the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. That is a really difficult prayer. Theologically, it's really tough. What stands out from the words that he just did? Anything stands out about Jesus in his, this prayer? Number one, how did he address the Father? Okay, the my Father? Okay, so again, we're getting right back to his, his closeness. What did somebody said something over here? He was thankful? Okay, okay. Did somebody say respect? Did I hear that? Yes, no? I'm hearing things then this morning. Okay. Was he reverential? What words? Lord. Okay. What else does he pray? How does he pray? Okay. Let's, let's just, I'm locked up for some reason. Okay. He prays in the sense of what does he recognize about God's ability? If you had to throw a term here about God and his power, what would you have? God is sovereign. Okay, you would have it that was included. Where he speaks about God's sovereignty, lordship over nature, the closeness which you mentioned. He makes it clear, and the, just for your information, the idea of he who knows isn't this knowledge. There's two different knowledges in the, in the uh, Aramaic Greek world. This knowledge or this knowledge. Okay, I know this person when Deb and I were in college, and uh, well, let's back up. When, we, when I started coming to the church where she was at, I got to know Deb up here. But as time went by, we spent time together, then I got to know her here. This is the know he's talking about in the text. A very intimate knowledge, a very committed knowledge. He spoke, speaks of God's willingness to reveal the Father to others. Here's a phrase that causes people problems that shouldn't cause you any difficulty with your Bible knowledge. He says um, the idea of you have hidden things from some people, but you revealed them to others. There are many who conclude that means God wants some people saved and others not saved. I don't believe that that is true of the Bible. Okay, I believe that God is not willing that any should perish, for God so loved the whole world. But what does he mean by this? You have hid things from the wise and prudent, but revealed to the babes. Who are the wise and the prudent? Why, why, would, you call the, why would you say it's the Pharisees? What did, what did you say, Jim? In their own minds. That's the key of the text. In their own minds and the way that the audience, the typical Jewish audience, what did they think of the Pharisees? They were the wise, the prudent. Okay, so in the context, he's referring to the group of people that everybody assumes is wise and prudent. You've hidden it from them. Why is it hidden from them? Go back to what we just talked about. The more revelation that's given to a hard heart, what happens to the heart? It gets harder. So their, their lack of understanding really falls on who? It falls on them. It really falls on them because they have a choice of what heart they want. Remember the different soils. Who are the babes then? Keeping that same type of interpretation, who's the babes in this text? Okay, the untrained, the unlearned, the un, um, you used unlearned, which is exactly what they use in the book of Acts. These are ignorant and unlearned men. We would say what that means is the untrained, the, the non-ministerial crowd. If it were back in Bible days and we were living there, who would be the unlearned? It would be us. It would be us, okay, that would say, okay, I am, start, I am listening. And so he's making it very clear that he's revealing his truth to people who want to hear truth. And uh, if, they're, if they're open to it, God's going God's gonna to fill their minds. So that brings me back to, okay, let's take this whole passage. Again, starting at the end of the text, why would anyone listening to Jesus want to become close to Jesus? Why would they take him up on an offer? Let's go back to the judgment. Let's take the text of the judgment. Why would you want to get close to Jesus? 
when he's warning about judgment? What's that? You don't want that, that evil judgment. And since he's the judge, you want to be with him, okay? You want to yoke up with the judge, okay? He's made it clear he's fo- close to the Father. He's made it clear he reveals the Father. He's making it clear that he's, he and the Father are working together in this judgment. So I'm going to get close to this guy. He's revealing God. I want to get close to him. He, he is himself close to the Father. I don't know about you. This, this excites me. Okay? This is me. Um, this, this past week, in our visits to the people who are going through dire, dire situations, I was really, really challenged. Have you ever gone to visit somebody that you're going to minister to and you walk away and you've been ministered to? Has that ever happened? You get more out of it. So when I was visiting with the Hausers, visiting with uh, the Hoys, the spouses, both of the occasions, I walked away humbled, just terribly humbled because they're both looking at situations that are extremely difficult, life and death situations. And their response in both cases is, we're just trusting the Lord. Whatever the Lord would have, we don't want the difficult situation get more difficult. We would rather have a healing, but whatever the Lord determines, we are willing to do. And I'm walking away and going, do I have that same type of spirit face-to-face in such difficult situations? Would I resist or would I surrender? And and my thought is, I want to go back and visit some more. I want to be close to them because they have a real sensitive heart and I want to get a little bit of that falling back towards me. Does that make sense? Yes? That's looking at Jesus and saying, this guy, and remember, we don't all know everything about him, but this guy is really close to God. Would it be to my benefit to be close to him? Because he's going to help me to get close to the Father. So we go a little bit further. Then Jesus turns to the crowds, and he makes this statement. He talks in this, in this passage, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. We all know that. Okay, what's he talking about when he talks about my yoke is light? Is this something that's common that they would understand what he's talking about, a yoke? Yes, no? Why? It's part of their their everyday life. Do they see yokes all over the place? Okay, so they see people working with it. They understand. And so when he talks about my yoke, we know he can't be talking about a piece of wood. We know that that's not the case. What was he talking about? If, if it's not the harness literally, literally, physically, what is it that he's talking about? Uh, the, things that he them to do. the things he wanted them to do? Okay, okay. So just the things he, let's, let's leave it, start with your first part. The yoke me is things he wants them to do. Anybody want to add to that or is that sufficient? Oh, oh, the Fer- did the Pharisees have yokes? Yes. What were their yokes upon the people? All the laws and the tradition. That brings us here. In, in Jewish writings, when they talked about the yoke, they meant this, the burdens people had to bear. It could be illness, sickness, trials, but whatever difficulty. Or it could be, which is related to it, That was the most popular of their concepts. It could be anything that resulted from Adam's sin. Which, by the way, then, how many of our burdens are are a result of Adam's sin? Okay, they all are. And so, basically, they would talk this way. It could be a sinful consequence, or it could be just any burden in life, which, by the way, was a sinful consequence. Um, But so that's what they often meant about a yoke, in one sense, something very negative, or they would talk about a positive yoke. The positive could be the direction God would give to those who yield. Because with the yoke, what do you do with the animals? You can steer them. You can guide them. And you can accomplish something. Okay? So they had a negative and a positive. Or they could even blend together. Could it become, what, like with the Pharisees, did, the, did they say, this is what God wants you to do, but it was really burdensome? Yeah, much so. And so basically what it came to be is disciples and masters would use this phrase frequently. 
that if you're my follower, you take my yoke upon you. In other words, you do what I'm teaching. And different groups. I mean, if we were to do it today and say, let's just kind of take that concept, right or wrong, and how they apply it. Does the Catholic Church have a certain yoke that they want their followers to take? Yeah, they have rules and regulations. Okay, does uh, the Mormon Church have certain yokes that they require of their followers? Jehovah Witnesses? Okay, do, uh, do Bible-believing churches, do they present a certain yoke to follow? Yeah, they do. Yeah, they do. So in a very broad sense, if we're a disciple and we're a follower within that denomination, it would be what we're doing and what, how we would identify ourselves. So with that, Jesus is going to say, okay, the reality is most people who are of his day under a yoke, did he understand the yoke that was placed upon the Jewish people was hard or really light? It was hard. And that's why he's giving a contrast. He's saying, come to me and the yoke that I will give you is light. Other words that he used. Easy. Okay? In the text. And so he's inviting people and he says, and I will give you rest. The word for rest is that idea of inner joy, peace. The idea of restoring you if you're physically tired. That all of a sudden you're going to... This is great. This is good. The uh, yoke that he's talking about, okay, is the idea of being his disciple. Let him lead. Yield to him completely. And it doesn't mean you don't do anything. It doesn't mean you just come and sit and do nothing. It means you learn and you do. If any man be a hearer of the word but not a doer, your faith is basically dead. Okay, and so he says, my yoke is easy and light. Those words that he uses is really interesting. The easy means it's on your shoulder and it's not rubbing and causing problems or abrasions. In other words, serving Christ is, yeah, can it be be hard in the sense that you're pulling a load? Yeah, but it's not going to be harmful to you. It's not going to hurt you. Okay, the idea is it can be not overbearing. He will, give, uh, he will not give us that which we, I'm, I'm phrasing it wrong. I know I'm going fast here. Um, now I'm, I'm stumped here. Help me out. He, cannot, he will not give us more than we can handle. Thank you. Um, and so the idea is that I will give you what you are able to deal with. Uh, it's kind of like um, several years ago, one of our kids, uh, our daughter and her husband, they had moved down towards uh, Lansdale area, and he was going to go to seminary, and they were in this place for a short period of time, and then they got another place. But we had helped them load up the stuff and box up the stuff and then get into this one apartment. And then after a while, we came back to help them move out of this short-term place to another place. And I remember carrying some books, boxes of books uh, that were really, really heavy boxes of books, especially for me. Okay, they were, they were really heavy. And I said to him, I said, Colin, who packed these books and made this box so heavy? And he laughed and he said, you did. Before the last time we moved, I haven't unboxed them. But you were the one that boxed them so much. Have you ever overloaded yourself with something? Oh, I'm not the only one. Okay. Jesus is saying, I'm not going to overload you. So I look and say, okay, why, would I, why, would, should, why might we be attracted to Jesus from what we just saw? He's what? He's going to help us. Any other things? Go ahead. Oh, yeah. What a, how wonderful. And with the yoke, remember, what does he promise? Not only, not only is he helping us, but what's he doing? He's guiding us, giving us direction. So what do we learn about him? He's a kind, caring leader guiding us in our life. So we look and say, okay, what happens? The disciples move along. This is on, anybody remember what day of the week this happens? The next paragraph, if you look at it, it just states it. Okay, chapter 12, it's the Sabbath day. And they're walking along and they're getting hungry. Anybody get hungry on Sundays? No, yes? Okay, they're walking along, they're getting hungry, and what do they do? They take the grain. They start plucking the grain, okay? And they're going to eat it. What's the reaction of the Pharisees? Who, by the way, look at the story. Look at how it unfolds. It says that they're walking along 
and they began to pluck the grain. And when the Pharisees saw it, what does that tell you about the Pharisees on the Sabbath day? <laughs> They're what? What did somebody say? They're waiting. They're watching. They're waiting for them to make a mistake. That would never happen to us. There would never be people who are critics watching how we live. Have you had relatives do that to you? Okay, so they pl pluck the grain, and the Pharisees respond, and what is their idea? What's their attack? They're working on the Sabbath day. They're, they can't be working on the Sabbath day, and they get really upset because they're doing it on the Sabbath day. Question, does the Old Testament prohibit picking grain on the Sabbath day? Oh, it's a 50-50 chance. It's like, who has a bigger brain, men or ladies? Okay, and you're hesitant. Okay, okay. Could they harvest, could they do a full-scale harvest on the Sabbath day? No, no. But you're right, you're right. There is a text, okay? Now we know Exodus 20 makes it very clear, thou shalt, not, thou shalt keep holy the Sabbath day, and you're not supposed to do full-time full work. But there is, in Deuteronomy, the idea of, if you're walking and you're plucking grain, this is not harvesting. If you're just... It, it's, like, it, it's like this, um, bad analogy, but do, you, do, you, do your kids eat a full, full meal right before they go to bed? What do they want? Just a snack. Do they consider it a full meal? No. Okay. And so, you know, there's a, there's a difference there. There's a difference in between full work, harvesting, and getting just a snack type thing. And it talks about them being able to do it. But here's, your, here's the, tat, the catch. Since the Bible was written hundreds of years earlier, the Pharisees have been adding to, and they call it the Mishnah, the Tanakh, they've been adding applications and spelling out what you can do and what you can't do. So when it says, thou shalt not work on the Sabbath day, for instance, they will define what does that mean. And some of their definitions would go like this way. A tailor, somebody who was involved with their occupation, could not carry a needle with them, even, in, you know, like pin it to them so they don't lose it. You can't carry it with you on the Sabbath day because you might be tempted to work. You can't carry the needle. And you and I would go, what, what's the big deal about carrying a needle in your lapel? Okay, but that was their rules. No one could carry anything heavier than a fig, and they defined it. Can't carry something heavier than a fig, otherwise you're working. But you might have to carry something a little bit heavier, but then you can only go so many steps. And then what did they do? The way that they got around it is, I will carry some of my supplies with me, and I will set up my house right here temporarily for two minutes. I will pack it up, and then what can I do with the burden that I'm carrying? I can continue carrying that X amount of steps. So then they said, no one can pluck a gray hair on the Sabbath. Why not? It's work. It's beauty. It's beautician work. You can't do that. No one was to throw anything up in the air and then catch it on the Sabbath day. Okay, so the, these are some of their spelled out things. And by the way, here's where some of it is today. Here's where it's spelled out a little bit more. No tying a permanent knot. Tying a bow. Tying a tie is permitted. Or you can tie your shoes, but it's not a permanent knot. So we define, okay? You can tie your shoes, but you can't tie a box shut on a more permanent basis. Um, no pasting, taping, or stapling paper on the Sabbath. So you can't seal an envelope or attach a postage stamp to an envelope on the Sabbath day, or you violate the Sabbath. However, if you fasten something with a safety pin, it's only temporary, so it's okay. Would this get burdensome, trying to figure out all the rules? So Jesus is talking to these people, and he's saying, okay, and he defends his Pharisees. Ah, he defends his disciples to the Pharisees. What, what's his arguments in the next couple of verses? The next couple of verses, what does he say? He says, didn't you read in the Old Testament, what did David do that violated certain rules? What did David do? Oh, please tell me you remember this from the, the series on David. 
When David was running for his life, he stopped and needed some food. He ate the, the showbread that was supposed to be for the priest, but it was given to him and it was okay because of a special circumstance. Jesus gives another illustration. He, in the next, ver, next verse, um, what does he say in verse 5? He says, hey guys, who else is working on the Sabbath day? The priest. And it's okay for them to work on the Sabbath day. Why? Because they're supposed to. I don't know. I don't have any other way. Then he gives a third illustration. His third illustration is, which one of you, if what happened? Something happened to you. What's that? Okay, so which one of you, when he's talking about it, he says, uh, do, 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 do. Uh, where are we at? He, yeah, down, down a little bit further. He's going to bring it up. The sheep he's going to bring. I'm sorry, I, I'm jumped ahead by paragraph. He just makes the comment, then the third one, he says that the greater is he that is in you, the one that's greater than the Sabbath, it's his claim to messianic authority at this moment. So in other words, what he's done is he's using titles that are messianic, and he says, his fourth comment is, the Old Testament says, I'd rather have mercy than I would have the rules and regulations. So he's defended the fella or his fellows. And then he goes into the, into the synagogue, okay? He departs, goes into their synagogue, the critic synagogue, and a man shows up with a withered hand. The man just happens to show up with the Pharisee doing this. What about this man's hand? What does that tell, imply to you? Did the Pharisee set him up? Okay, so the Pharisee set him up, and he's saying, he, they're saying, you know, what are you going to do about this man's hand? And they know what Jesus can do. He's been healing a lot of works during this time. And so their comment is, you know, what are you going to do? And so the miracle occurs. It's the Sabbath day. We say that the Pharisees, that they might accuse him. He responds and he says to them, hey, which one of you, if you had a what? A sheep that was, that was in trouble. He falls into a pit on the Sabbath day. Which one of you wouldn't go and get the sheep out of there? And the answer is, they would all do it. Why? It's their sheep. It's, it's, it's really important. And he goes, if you're, not will, if you're willing to help out a sheep on a Sabbath day, why won't you help out the man with a withered hand on the Sabbath day? What's so bad about this on the Sabbath day? Remember, he's already declared his authority. Jesus' logic in all of his discussion is flawless. Jesus' knowledge of the Old Testament was just absolutely beyond any of theirs. Okay, so then we say, what did Jesus do next? Okay, he heals the man, it's complete healing, and he talks about the idea of what they need to do is show mercies to this individual. The reaction of the Pharisees that you see in this story is they hold a council, verse 14. They're organizing for what purpose, verse 14? What does it say? They hold a council to do what? They want to destroy him. They want to get rid of him. Okay, so what's that tell you about the Pharisees? The hard heart just gets harder as they're seeing the hand of God that's going there. And they're just stuck on it. Jesus then departs. The crowds follow him. And it says in the next verse, he heals them all. He continues showing this compassion. And he talk, the crowds they are coming. Here, l- let me just jump ahead. Okay. Why, what would draw you to Jesus? If you've been following in the crowd all this time, what things in this whole story would just make you think, I want to be close to Jesus? What, what have you just seen in Jesus? Okay, he's, he's a miracle worker. He's powerful. What, he what? How so? He's taking care of the people. He's caring. What else did you see? He has mercy. And he calls for mercy. Hey, if if you're a student of the scripture, what have you just seen Jesus compared to the others? He's really doing with scripture. Did you want to go that route? He's Yeah. Which which one of these people, the Pharisees, like you just said, they don't get it, or Jesus, which one of them is displaying a real understanding of the Bible? Jesus. And if you say, I want a good teacher, who are you going to go to? 
You're going to go to Jesus. The story just keeps on unfolding about how Jesus is just, you know, and by the way, here's a question for you. Why he knew that they were going to get ticked. This is so modern day. We can't offend anyone. That's modern day, yes? Yeah. Got to be careful. Don't offend anyone. Okay, I'm gonna, you're, you're the Pharisee because you you're just sitting here this morning. Okay. So, I know, I'm sorry. Okay, so Larry's our Pharisee. I know, I, and I'm Jesus, and we're arguing over healing this man. I know if I heal this man in the synagogue on the Sabbath day, Larry is going to do what? Larry's going to be even madder at me. He's going to be really offended. Do you ever hear that term today? Okay. What does Jesus do? I, I can't offend Larry. I can't offend Larry, so I just... What does Jesus do? He does what is merciful, what is right, even if legal Larry... Okay, oh, that just fits so well. Okay. Okay. Even if legal Larry is going to get offended, I have to do and say what is right. Jesus is boldly helping others. The story can just keep on going this way. The rest of the story. What is it, if you're standing there and you're watching Jesus over these last days, wouldn't you be compelled to want to get to know this guy? He's loving, he's compassionate, he's learned in the right sense. He's bold, he's sticking up for the the common man, the underdog. Yeah, and he makes sense. Boy, that applies to today too. Jesus is just, from a human, this, this point of view, take a, you know, not his, just his deity, but from this point of view, man to man, what is Jesus? Yeah. Yeah, you would want to say, you, you, you want me to be your brother? I'm signing up now. Does that make sense? continue through the rest of the chapter and just play with the rest of the story. It all shows you, remember, it's telling you about people's experiences with Jesus. And what you and I can do at times is get out of the sandals of the 2020s, step back in the sandals and say, how did this impact people? You know, what, did, what attracted them? Why would they want to make Jesus a kinfolk? Wow. It just makes the, makes the statement even more potent. I got to stop. <sighs> okay. We'll pick up in a couple of weeks. Thanks so much for your input. That was fun. Thank you, Legal Larry.